is Ronaldo. Oh, my goodness. You don't save those. Out of this world. Messi. 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 Things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross and Dempsey is denied again. And Donovan has scored. Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA. Certainly through. Oh, it's incredible. You could not write a script like this. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crown champions of the world. From the international stage to right here at home, this is FUVFC, talking all things soccer on WFUV Sports. Hey there, we've missed you. Welcome back to FUVFC. We have so much to talk about this week, uh, but first let me just quickly introduce the three of us here on this podcast on FUVFC, the only soccer podcast here via WFUV Sports. My name is Dylan Balsamo, joined by my friends Keenan Troy and Danny Perry. Keenan, I'll start with you. How was your two weeks? It was good. Um, A lot of soccer wrap-up happened at that time, and then with the Euros ending in the Copa, and then also looking forward as the U.S. are getting their Gold Cup campaign going for the men's, and then the Olympics are right around the corner for the women. So, Overall, very good week, and, you know, soccer's kind of taking its foot off the gas with the end of two major tournaments, but we still have enough to get us through till August when we can start talking about leagues and the soccer world picking up in full swing yet again. Yes, very much so. So much to get through, even as two major tournaments end, and, you know, domestic season is not that far away. So this is not going to be very long that soccer has their foot off the pedal. But, Danny, I'll go to you. Uh, It's been a pretty busy couple weeks for you as well, hasn't it? It's been crazy, you know, playing in my own soccer league and then trying to follow what's going on in the Euros and Copa. It was a spectacular two weeks of soccer we were just given as fans or, you know, analysts, whatever you want to call yourself. But I was shocked. I'm happy that we seem to kind of know what we're talking about. I I know I predicted Italy to be in the final for the Euros. I believe Keenan did say England would be there. It, it was spectacular to watch. I'm excited, as Keenan said, for the Gold Cup. I'm excited for the Olympics. And let's not forget that soccer doesn't end. We have World Cup qualifiers for the men coming up also. So it's, it's, it's still going. We have the Gold Cup, which is, you know, the Euro and the Copa for, for the U.S. Let's see what they do. There is always soccer going on, not only at the domestic, but also international level, especially mm-hmm. here in this in this post-UEFA Nations League era of international football, as one might call it. But let's get right into Euros. So we didn't have an episode last week, so we did not get to really cover what happened in the semis or uh, in the finals. So we'll just go right through everything as it happened. We'll start with Italy, Spain in uh, the semifinals. That was... It was a really interesting matchup. It ended up being closer than I think a lot of people expected it to. Because, Keenan, I'll go to you here. Italy may have been the better team overall, but they did not really look it for most of the length of that game. Yeah, and I think um, credit to Spain when you look at that game. And if you watched it live or, you know, you missed it and you just happened to check out the highlights on YouTube, you look at that Spanish team and though they were not 
potent on the counterattack. I think they did their job in the midfield, which is, I think, where a lot of people would have discounted them just against an Italian team that tends to like to dominate through the middle, um, starting with their defense and then, you know, playing one touch, two touch through the back and then transforming that into an attack in the middle. I think that's where a lot of people thought the Spanish side would get lost. But, you know, they seem to hold their own. We're able to get a good late goal and force extra time. And then I think as soon as extra time started, you got the sense that that Spanish team was just going to play for penalties because I think they knew that the longer that it was tied in extra time and if they had, you know, tried to open it up and go forward, that's where they'd be susceptible to good through balls coming from that Italian midfield, which we know is so potent and dangerous. And so I think that's credit to the Spanish team. I think that's, you know, you see them holding their own against would-be champions of Europe. And so I think that kind of replaces Spain, even though they didn't fall off per se from, you know, a top competitor on the international stage. I mean, they had a rough go in 2014 and then 2018 losing to the host Russia in penalties. They kind of... As a soccer fan, you kind of look at them not as as we have been talking about the Spain of old, in which you know they'll go out any given match day and probably dominate and probably you know at least be in a contested game. You kind of look at them and say, where are they going to go from here? So I think it's good momentum for the Spanish, and ultimately it comes down to penalties. Italy go through as they had done in the final as well. So yeah, I think just watching that game, kind of reappreciating the new direction that Spain's heading in, and you know. They still have some old men in the ranks, and granted, Ramos didn't play, but you assume he's going to be back to captain them in the World Cup. But it's it's still that same Spanish engine that can get things done and playing solid in the midfield, even though they don't have the likes of Xavi or Iniesta there, Busquets is still that old head in there that is willing to hold things down and anchor that Spanish team. Yeah, I have to echo most of what Keenan said, but really, Spain, I don't want to say they shocked me when I watch this game. Spain is not a team that we should forget. They're ranked higher in the FIFA rankings than Italy just by one spot, but I believe it's sixth sixth that they're ranked. In the the game, they they outshot Italy 16 to 7. The possession was absolutely astronomically different. 71% to Spain, 29% to Italy. But at the end of the day, the shots on target were really similar. And that's four for Italy and five for Spain. Goes to PK's. It, it was a game that made me worry for the final after Italy did win. But at the end of the day, Italy comes out victorious, as I did predict they would. And here we are going into the finals, which was another crazy game. Very much so. You look at that game, uh, particularly that semi between Italy and Spain. And, you know, while Italy did come out the victor, you know, I think they're a team that's very tough to beat when it comes to extra time and penalties. They will they will double down in that part in the game but I think what Spain did really for the opening 90 minutes was um, expose a lot of Italy's problems offensively and in the midfield like Keenan had mentioned something I noticed and I know I mentioned this last episode of this podcast but you know it, Italy's got a lot of, of, of pop as you might say offensively um, but they're not a particularly clean team you know we saw a lot of offside calls in that uh, in that semi uh, we saw Eight some uh, yeah, exactly. We saw we saw even more uh, against England. Not as much though. Um, so you know, obviously credit to Spain for uh, exposing those holes in a team that was really the favorite to win this tournament from the start. And fortunately for them, did end up winning. But 
um, did have to make some adjustments before they did that. But, you know, that was Saturday of last week. I'm trying to th think back in, in motion so we take care of everything. That was Saturday last week. Let's go to Sunday of last week, which I guess is now like uh, like 10 or 12 days ago. But OK, so Sunday of last week, that was England and Denmark in the other semifinal decide who would be facing Italy at Wembley this past Sunday. Uh, so, uh, Daniel, I'll go to you first. Uh, obviously, uh, England came out the victory of that game, and that game was not as close. Denmark, Denmark let me down. They were they were my final <laughs> final. Pick. I just wanted to see England get out, but yeah, you know, it, it's England. England came through, and I I paid attention to them, and that's where I realized they are a solid team. They are they they come through in big moments. Harry Kane came through again. They they matched up with Denmark better than I believe the other teams did. And I and I also believe again going back to stats, you know, 20 shots compared to 6, their defense buckled down. I I said this once, I'll say it a million times again, defense wins championships. If you can hold a team to not shoot on you, you're you you're going to come across victorious if you could just put one in then if you could hold them to whatever it is so they came out to one with the win you know again it's it's scoring in the 39th minute nine minutes after Denmark put one in it's showing them that you're gonna come back and that's that's a soccer team that you don't want to mess with because if you can not put your head down and continue forward in the game that that shows the strength and and how much England really did want to win this tournament yeah and I think Echoing Danny's sentiments, thinking about that, you know, England versus Denmark game, you come in and you, I mean, at least when we talked about it prior to last week, we all thought, you know, England's road to the final was pretty, pretty much cut and dry. It was not something that, you know, you look on paper and you see them facing Denmark um, after a tough first round against Germany. We always thought, you know, whoever wins that uh, round of 16 matchup, they're probably going to skate through to the final, but Danny, if I remember correctly, had told us like, hey, they still have to face Denmark and Denmark is a quality team. Mm -hmm. And watching them play Denmark, I think you, you realize too how important it is at an international level, just like it is at a club level, that the teams that play as one oftentimes succeed versus the teams that rely on individuals to do certain things when it comes to late game. And all credit to Denmark looking at this game, just, you know, very much a bend, don't break attitude a very much, you know, we're going to play the style of soccer that we play and sure that may be, you know, put eight men behind the ball on the defensive end and, you know, just weather the storm and not concede. And that seemed to work. And then very unlucky penalty call. I think <laughs> the rivals iron Robins flop in the 2014 world cup against um, Mexico, where there's minimal contact and, you know, the hand of God, not above your head like Maradona, but the hand of God <laughs> on your back, um, you know, seems to push you over. And then, you know, with, I mean, I don't want to get too devolved into this just because I do. recap, but <laughs> I think that with when you have the technologies of VAR and the access of VAR and you can check that penalty in such a close game, I just don't know how you don't go take a look. And I don't know how you see that though there's contact in an extra time, Euro semifinal. It's really cheap to give a pen away like that. Um, if you look back to the 2018 World Cup, I mean, it was a more blatant call, but something about Denmark, man, and giving away penalties in extra time. They did it to Croatia too, and Schmeichel again saved in that. 
uh, game. He saved Modric going to his left, just like he saved Harry Kane. But Kane, you know, follows up on the rebound, scores, and then England just locks everything down after that and refuses to even give Denmark even a sniff of goal because I think they realized at that point that if they were to go to pens, you know, the Danish are especially playing with house money because they don't have the pressure of playing at home and potentially playing at home for a final. And as a clear underdog in the match, I think as soon as Sterling sells that call, they give that penalty, which was not a penalty, at least in my humble opinion. I think as soon as, you know, Kane follows in that rebound, Southgate does well to tell his team, okay, whatever we thought we had going forward, unless, you know, you can release someone quickly down the wing, we're not going to try and build. We're just going to possess in the back and then, you know, hold on to possession and whatever the Danish throw at us, we're just going to have to sit in and defend because we need to go to this final for not only for, you know, the sake of the players, but for the sake of playing at home and how much it would mean to them. And I mean, then we see what happens. So Southgate maybe would have been better to go out in the semifinals, but that's my, my I, I think, you know, Denmark did throw a lot at England in, in the first, in the first half. And then they just completely gassed themselves and they were really holding on in that extra time. But, I didn't want to agree with you here because I thought you were going to say something different about the penalty, but if I'm the ref, I'm with you, Keenan. There's no way I can call that. Not in this game, not in, in the extra, in extra time. I rewatched the play multiple times as a forward myself. I wouldn't, I'm not calling that. I, I cannot change the game off of such a, questionable PK and I believe that Kane went down in the box maybe earlier in that game where that was a way more clear call than the Sterling call so it really nothing takes the the spirit out of soccer than to see a game determined by a questionable call and I cannot be more strong about my opinion there with that it it's defeating you could only just you know, you're versing one team, but sometimes you're also versing the ref. And and like you said, we have VAR now. We have to utilize this system so much better. Uh, yeah, that's it's it's defeating. Well, uh, first of all, and it seems to be the sentiment we have here, a real tip of the cap to Denmark uh, for even getting to the semis of this Euro tournament in what was really, I would say, a pretty stacked tournament. There was there was a lot going on here, a lot of storylines, a lot of power, a lot of talent. And Denmark manages to get to the semifinals. So uh, credit to them in that respect. Um, in, in terms of, of England here, you know, I think Denmark played a similar role to what Spain just did against Italy in exposing some, some real issues with the team. I mean, like, I think England did come out the better team of this game, but it wasn't by a lot. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was questionable calls that in many ways did lead to this victory. It was not... It, it was it was not England's game to lose anyway at any point prior to that. So th- that is a little concerning, you know. It, but England's a, a, a great team. They got a lot of heart. They got a lot of talent more than anything else. Uh, but to me, some some issues were were, were exposed as well. Um, as much as they were putting shots on net, um, they weren't really scoring in this game. And you expected that after uh, a blowout in the quarterfinals they would look a little more prepared for this game, if you know what I mean. So that concerned me a tad. But uh, we can move on now to (laughs) the final. And that is Italy and England. If you hadn't picked that up yet, go back and listen again. But we've said it a bunch of times already. This was an Italian victory in penalties. Uh, I believe 1-1 was the score after uh, 
after the 90, right? And then Italy won on penalties. So they are crowned the European champions over England at Wembley Stadium. It is not coming home. In fact, as the Beatles might say, she is leaving home. <laughs> but Keenan, I'll go to you first because, you know, first I want to talk about the game. So, so let's talk about the game first. What, what are your takeaways from this match? Well, I think so right off the gate, you see Luke Shaw score on a really good back post run. And then there's personal beef with me and Taylor Twelman. Um, who calls ESPN's does ESPN soccer analysis, and he was, in my my personal opinion, Taylor. If you happen to stumble across this podcast at one point in your life, there's no actual personal grievance. It's just the way that he was saying that how you know you need to be tight. He's saying how you can't allow that ball to be played in from that position to pick out Shaw at the back post. But all things aside, incredible ball across the through the box. Luke Shaw running back post. Um, Tough to mark him because he's moving against the way the game has been played. It's all being played on that right-hand side. So naturally you need an extra winger to tuck in to pick up his run. He isn't picked up and he finishes class at the back post. But I think that goal so early this like didn't really favor the way that England needed to play this game because as soon as that goal went in, to me it seemed like they took the foot off the gas. They had a couple good chances in the rest of the first half. Um, Donnarumma wasn't really forced into action a lot, but he still had to be alert. Um, but it didn't, to me at least, seem like they were ever threatening early in that game after that first goal. I thought that if England was to, you know, have a chance to win and, and not force it depends, I think they needed to go quicker paced at Italy since the kickoff. And yes, they scored in the second minute. So you might ask how more than that, but they didn't really, they had their foot on the neck and they didn't kill. Essentially you score in the second minute. If you bury one, another one in the second half to go up to nothing, at least from a tactical perspective, you really need to rewrite the whole script. If you're Italy in order to produce something in the second half. And so then we go into halftime, still one nil Italy. And then out of the second half, seemingly the Italians woke up the italians got yelled at emphatically or you know they just started to click and how they played but they dominated possession coming out of the second half and then they get that goal off a corner um pickford was really incredible this whole game i always me personally i kind of doubted his ability to play at the top level i think watching him with everton he sometimes is sloppy playing out of the back and sometimes I think at least he's makes too much out of simple situations and often shoots himself in his foot, but he played incredible um, on the goal by Benucci. I mean, nothing you can do rebound off the post, but he made an incredible save off the first header that forced it onto the post and then an unfortunate bounce for Italy to pounce and score. And then going into extra time, I think, you know, where we saw in the Denmark game, England falter was, could they create that extra step to score a goal? And I think this is where kind of Southgate fell asleep at the wheel in terms of the amount of talent he has on his bench, not to unload that bench earlier. We see Sancho and Rashford get introduced really late in the game, like 116th minute late, where seemingly they're being only brought on to take penalties, which we can talk about when we get to the shootout. Um, But I don't think that what ultimately caused England was not willing to change how they played after scoring a first goal so early. I think they were content with that. And then as soon as they got to extra time, they kind of adopted the mindset of, you know, teams that aren't favored to win games and are just comfortable with penalties, where I personally think Southgate should have said, okay, we've got Marcus Rashford, we've got a Jaden Sancho, we got a Phil Foden, guys that can create going forward and that are quick enough to the point where we don't need to be dominant in possession for them to get involved. We can just almost like kick and run or, you know, 
quick combination passes in the midfield and then let them run at a weaker, not weaker, but a clearly tired uh, Italian defense because we know they don't make subs along the back line in close games. Yeah, I'm very shocked at this game, to be honest. Italy, in my opinion, absolutely dominated England, even if you're just looking at passes, 820 compared to 426. That's almost double. That's double the passes. 19 shots for Italy, six for England, six on target for Italy, two for England. I was watching this game. I was actually in a hospital emergency room watching it on my phone. So I'm trying to see it in skin, but I'm looking at it and it's like, where, why is Italy not scoring at this point? Because they're running all over England. I don't, I, I have a critique for Kane here. The goal that Italy scores, he's right there on, on the goalie's line. And it's almost like he watched the play instead of being a defender for England. And I understand he did eventually go to stick out his leg. Anybody could do that when they're like, oh, crap, I've been watching. But I think Kane could have actually came away the hero if he would have just stopped watching and defended the loose ball. That was where he was positioned. That was his job. He didn't do it. It goes to PK, PKs. And how do we not talk about the hero of, I would say, the tournament of Italy? He should be named king at 22 years old if Italy has kings, the goalkeeper, Donnarumma. I mean, unbelievable. He had some help from the post in the PKs, but besides that, he also saved two. And a fun fact, before heading into this tournament, he has won every PK shootout he's ever been involved in heading into the tournament. Two wins with Italy in the Euros means now he's five for five in his career. A success rate of 34%, beating Buffon with 31%. Now I know his career is way a lot shorter than Buffon right now, but this guy is a hero for Italy coming up that big against England, who is nobody to be messed with. Obviously they're in the final. I can't say enough about this young star. I feel like he is somebody I just became a fan of somebody. I want to watch. He is a hero. He changed the game. When we went, when, when we, when Italy went into PK's, I felt felt this comfort that this goalkeeper is going to make saves and that that's what he did. And I'll never forget watching the reaction of his last save. There was none. There was a straight face and I was watching and I'm like, didn't they just win thinking his reaction was, it keeps going on, but that's how confident this young kid is. And Italy has a diamond in him. Unbelievable. Well, I read in an interview that, he didn't realize they had won. So, like, <laughs> he made me think that they didn't win either. Yeah, he, just, he was interviewed after the game. He was like, I thought we had to shoot again. That's why he didn't score. And then he's like, then I saw the guys running at me. And I was just like, oh, okay, cool. That's why I need you, Keenan. Because you know what? I was a little confused. I thought he was just very confident. But you know what? That's good to know out of the young the young stud Italy has. But that that's very funny. You know, that's, a, that's how lost in the moment he was, though. Like, you know, sometimes – in certain games, if you're that concentrated, you're just focusing on that PK as a goalie. And, and I guess that's what he was doing. I'm, I must say, to, to be that out of focus in the one of the biggest moments of your life, I not a word I typically use, but that's the most gangster thing I've ever heard in my entire <laughs> life. My goodness. Also, from my understanding, Italy has presidents. 
uh, but don't quote yes, me. Yes, they do. No, they okay. do. I was just saying they okay. should have a king and it should be Donnarumma. Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to say, don't quote me on that. And what better place to not have someone quote you than to record he it? You could move to England and become king there. He did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. Keenan, I know you had some thoughts on the, on the penalty shootout. Do you want to throw in here? Yeah, well, I think first you see it with Spain and talk, just talking about Donnarumma real quick. And that Spanish penalty shootout. Um, you know, he saves Maratas, which wasn't really a class pen, but still a save nonetheless. So, and, you know, you look at that record and you think, okay, what's he doing different than anyone else who prepares for a penalty shootout? And me personally, I just think it's the confidence in which he dives. I think a lot of times, I mean, Pickford made some saves as well. So no, you know, don't take any credit away from him, but I think Donnarumma and, you know, goalies that succeed in penalties or goalies that you see save penalties, it's always pick a spot and then timing that dive perfectly, which is sometimes hard to do with, you know, we see different run-up strategies um, and especially when guys are hitting it with such pace. But I think, you know, Donnarumma, especially with the saves that he made against England, um, you see him committing fully to a dive, which, I mean, even at a senior level is, you can imagine is difficult when there's that much pressure, but seemingly in his post-game interview he doesn't really know what's going on um to the point where he feels that pressure maybe and i think you know that echoes a sentiment of you know you see it with buffon too in his unison with the back line that donnarumma has bought in to the italian identity of you know just doing your job which i think you know you see with their back line which is why it's so strong is because they're fully committed to you know defending well as a unit and donnarumma you know seemingly not even realizing that his save just won them the European championship. Um, probably one of the better Cinderella stories we've seen after they missed the world cup, even though, you know, it's kind of like Virginia after they lost to UMBC in March madness. Um, but him just being fully invested in, okay, my job here is to give my, uh, my fellow teammates a chance to score to win. And, you know, if I have to save, I'll save. But I think going into the penalty shootout though, my one critique or my biggest critique is with Southgate, um, England's manager, because you see him let Saka, Rashford, and Sancho take penalties and allegedly, um, at least coming from the England camp and players involved in that, you know, pre-penalty discussion as they're signing their first five, um, you know, the young guy's hands went up. So I think, A, you need to look to your older, more senior members to say, no, I want to step up. This shouldn't be on the pressure of a 19-year-old kidding Saka. But also from Southgate's perspective, when you bring on guys like Rashford and Sancho so late in the game, you put an increased pressure on them to make their penalties because they haven't, you know, they're world-class talent, but they haven't done anything for the entire game. They're being brought on with, you know, three minutes left in open play before penalties. So seemingly they're tactical substitutions because you think they're going to succeed in the penalty shootout. And I think that's a lot of pressure, whether it's subconscious or not for the players taking the penalties. I think when you're put in a position where your sole purpose in that game is to score a penalty and you literally have done nothing else besides, you know, kind of get loose on the field during regular play. Um, I don't, I just, from a manager perspective, I don't like the move just because if you let, you know, the guys who have been out there the whole pit match stay out there and take the penalty, I think there's a mental level in which you're like, okay, this penalty, though it means a lot, I've done so much in the game already that this isn't like, you know, my end all be all versus you bring someone on fresh to take a penalty. It's literally like, if I miss this penalty, I've done nothing to contribute and I've actually hurt my team. Um, 
but yeah, not to take anything away from Jordan Pickford. He was great. I think when you see Jorginho step up in the fifth frame with a chance to ice it for Italy, almost everyone is saying this one's over because of not only his clinicalness from the spot, but also, you know, that cheeky little run up where he does that pause right before he strikes it. We saw it um, against Spain where the goalkeeper is just frozen in the middle, but Pickford very disciplined, knows what he's knows what's coming, um, stays true on his line, wait for the ball to be striked, incredible save, touches it off the post. So nothing he could do, but I just think, again, going into that shootout, you need your more senior members to step up. You need um, – can't put that pressure on guys who have just been introduced to the match, whether they be young or not. So I think – I know we could get into it a little bit, but, I mean, it's certainly a storyline around soccer – um, about like the racial backlash because the three men who missed were African American or African black um, from England. English fans, if this somehow reaches you, look to your look to your manager if you're looking to complain, because you know it's a game and that happens. But it's an increased pressure on those players, and they're put in a tough situation when their sole job in the match is to make a penalty. It's not Tim Krul coming off the bench to save against Costa Rica, you know these guys are world-class talents that are being put in a tough spot where all they have to do is score. Keenan, I thank you for bringing that up. You know, it has nothing to do with what skin color we are. We all bleed red. And if you miss a PK, it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters that, okay, you miss a PK and, and they should not be put down and, and receive those racist remarks because they miss a PK. They're young. They're bright stars for this England team. And I don't think, anything disgusted me more than finding that out and hearing that in the news that that's what's going on. You know, your team in England got so far, you, you can't, we're, we're human. We need to do better. We, we need to do better. I am actually at a lack of words for that topic, but I appreciate you bringing that up. It's something important and something that should be spoken about more. Should be spoken about constantly, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And you know, my, uh, my biggest gripe with it was uh, not only that, you know, this was this comes from just a place of anger and fans that is so un, un, unbased in any sort of way, but also that this is the way they choose to express their anger is just comes from, just makes you question much more uh, the, the, the human identity more than anything else. And it's also um, really disheartening to see the lack of reaction from UEFA and FIFA just in general and how they seemingly really have no idea how to go about um, addressing this particular problem or solving the much more broader issue that is racism in this sport. Um, but of course you can't really solve that when it's a problem all over the world. But I'm, I, to finish things off about this game, I think in regards to Italy, um, I, I think after it, it's almost proven uh, really true at this point, but after 90 minutes and 30, 30 minutes extra time and penalty kicks, the better team is going to come out the victor. And I think that's really what happened here. As good as England is, I think what really uh, did them dirty in this tournament, and I'm, this is a weird thing to say, but I think um, playing almost every single one of their games at Wembley uh, did not serve them well. Cause I think by the time the finals came around, they were just a little too comfortable. That's kind of what I felt after this, uh, after their matchup against Denmark actually was, you know, that wasn't, you know, it wasn't their best outing. Um, and, you know, as we talked about, that was not a game that they won by uh, by any wide margin. It really did come down to a rather controversial call, and that put England in the final over Denmark. And, you know, when it comes down to things, uh, in, this, in this final, they even seemed a little too comfortable there, too. I think they scored in that opening, uh, what was it, the second minute, right? Luke Shaw's goal? 
the the fastest goal in the history of the of the Euro final. And I think after that, they kind of uh, got a little too big for their bridges, and that's what happened, and that's what got Italy the victory. At least from my perspective, Danny, it looks like you disagree. It's not that I disagree. I think that if if I want to say something positive about England, I think they actually played. Italy's game the first 45 minutes it takes conviction and self-belief to switch your tactics they went in as they overcame Germany into the Italy game so as they did in the round of 16 they opted for three center backs they locked down and they made the Italians have to go outside which is not is not necessarily their game and Italy was only to a combined three shots and they were all from 30 yards and longer it was the second half when Berardi changed the game off the bench for Italy and and, and that's when it all changed. So I actually think England had a very stellar first half. It was their second half when, when Berardi changed the game for Italy coming off the bench. So their switch of mentality, playing more defensive, scoring that early goal and locking down in the first half, they lost it though in the second half. And that was the issue. They just couldn't sustain that defensive mentality. And Italy has the defense, but they also have weapons. And we talked about offsides before. You have young forwards, trying to go fast, trying to go forward, offsides happens. I think Italy does need to watch that a little bit, but that's also just goes to show how much pressure Italy's throwing every team that they're getting so many more offsides calls than other teams. They are throwing it at them. That's what they did, and England couldn't couldn't hold on. The 67th minute, Italy capitalized. It was To me, it was game over once it was going to PKs. Absolutely. Now, um, very quickly, just to wrap things up about the, this this conversation, you know, we talked about Italy uh, beating Spain in the in the second round. And, you know, for a long time, Spain really owned all um, major competitions that they were a part of. Um, it is interesting to see, at least I think, what, you know, the next couple of Euro tournaments will look like. Because, you know, as much as Italy was the favorite of this tournament, I have no idea what things are going to look like around 2024. Uh, when uh, when the Euros uh, go to Germany for the next installation of this tournament. I'm curious uh, about you, uh, you guys' opinions, and I'll go to you here first, Danny, uh, just about what is the outlook of European international football for the next four, maybe eight years? Does Italy remain the favorite for a little while to come? Uh, does a team like Denmark continue to grow on the potential that they showed in this tournament? What do you think? I think the future is really, really bright for the European teams. You know, Italy, 34 unbeaten streak. I think it's hard to say they're not the favorite. They versed the top contenders in Europe. They proved to be relentless and they, they could put up a fight, whether they go down or go up first, it doesn't matter. They win. So Italy, Italy is a team to watch. I want to see how France responds after this tournament, I don't think there are teams to be counted out. I'm curious to see, though, you know, in the Olympics where you have not just European teams, but you have, you know, South American teams like Brazil, for instance, going against the European teams. I want to see these two tournaments now clash and how the teams stand up. I'm curious to see how Italy would do against a team like Brazil. I think that would test their defense much more than the European nations would. But most importantly, going forward, concentrating on Europe, I want to see, I can't, I can't get Austria out of my mind, to be honest. They, they impress me. And again, I'm not going to give up on Denmark just yet. Even Portugal, they have some great teams here. It's hard to say that I would think there's no chance. I would say one of the Copa teams right now would beat 
a top Euro team. That, that's how I feel. I think the European teams are, are much stronger. Yeah, and I think agreeing with Danny there, it's almost like, you know, iron sharpens iron. We see with the UEFA um, Nations League that there's an increased pressure or whatever in the Euros um, for when national teams line up against each other, that they're not just playing friendlies, that, you know, these games mean something. And that, you know, you're going to see your best 11 versus your best 11s. You're going to see tactical duels, which isn't just concerned about getting guys fit for an upcoming uh, tournament or, you know, keeping them fit for an international break during uh, domestic seasons. I think you see a pressure on them to play their best soccer against one another. I think that's why you see the European League, you're not your, excuse me, European national teams um, excelling. And, you know, you see teams like Denmark growing considerably over the past like three, four years in terms of being a national power. You've seen teams like Croatia, which were always talented, and though they didn't have a good run this European final, you saw them as underdogs go all the way to the World Cup final. It's because there's an increased pressure within Europe to put your best 11 together and to create a new unified bond, if you will, better sense of camaraderie between those 11 in training and in match play that are actually worth something and I think that's where you kind of lose a team like Brazil almost. I think that, you know, there's not a consistent 11 that you see line up week in and week out for them. Even in the Copa, there were combinations of who was in goal, who's going to – I mean, the center backs are pretty locked in, but outside of that, there's some flexibility almost everywhere. And I think that's where they kind of shoot themselves in their foot. And also, not to discredit anyone in the Copa, that's you know, not a Brazil, that's not an Argentina mainly. But I think that there are some teams – within that field of play kind of with the United States similar to and CONCACAF that there are teams that you know when you line up against it's easier to take your foot off the gas and you know you're not lining up and saying okay we have to pressure them for 90 minutes Brazil could line up against a team like Paraguay for instance and be like if we give them a solid first half and go up three goals then we're done and we can put everyone on ice so I think you know moving into the next World Cup I think you're probably going to still see your European teams stay that are heavy hitters, stay heavy hitters. I think, as Danny said, France will have a good rebound there. Um, I think Italy continues to ride this momentum high. And then you're going to see teams like, you know, the Dutch, the Spanish, probably the Danish again, English, all those guys have really good tournaments depending on who their group is and depending how um, post group play shapes out. But yeah, I think that, you know, in the next 10, five years with, and go, even looking at Euro 24, I think we're going to see these teams that were once smaller football nations really start to become forces to be reckoned with. Dylan, as you said, the Danish are a great example, but I also think teams like Ukraine, I think, you know, Austria, as Danny is very high on, or even the Czech Republic, I think these teams are going to be very, very potent going forward. And it's not going to be lining up against them, say, and have the same attitude you would say 10 years ago. Yeah. And Keenan, to piggyback off of some of the stuff you said, you know, Copa and Euro, at what my difference is, and this is along the lines of, you know, playing as a team and sticking with players, I feel like the Copa has a very individualistic style of play. They don't have a team style play, in my opinion. It's, for instance, when the Copa final happened, even myself, it was Neymar versus Messi. It wasn't Brazil versus Argentina. It's a highlight of certain players, constant changing. But something that really stands out to me, and Dylan, I texted you about this, <laughs> the foul differential in the Copas compared to the Euros, it comes down to discipline. There is no such thing as discipline 
when I was watching the Copa, the, the fouls are astronomical. It's, it's almost hard to watch those games for me. It's a stop and go style of play. It's, it's crying because the wind blows you rather than playing on. There's no grit almost. It's, it's, it's to me, it's almost a different, it's a different sport sometimes when I'm watching it. Statistics in just a four game span for the Copa, there was 115 fouls, an average of 29 a game, 18 yellows, one red, 360 minutes. In the Euros over 11 games, 223 fouls. It's just, a, there's, there's a discipline that needs to be implemented to the, to the Copa teams, in my opinion, where why are we stopping and going? This is not soccer. Soccer's supposed to flow. Yeah, if there's a foul, call it. But we're not, half of these are either crazy, ridiculous, dangerous plays where somebody's getting kicked in the face or their baby fouls where the ref is losing control of the game because everyone goes down for nothing. The European soccer teams, they play soccer. Yeah, they go down too, but it's, it's just different to me. It's, there's, there's so much less stop and go. It's, it's a beautiful game to watch when I'm watching the Euros compared to the Copa. It is certainly interesting to see how you know, this is an interesting side conversation we have going right here. The, the way the game evolves in different areas of the world. You know, you're, I think you're, European football is definitely the way we, we most often associate with what we call soccer here in the United States. Uh, the um, a very particular way of playing in, in South America. It's, I would say, very similar to NBA basketball. It's, it's you know, you, you mentioned the individualistic kind of way that there is a there's a certain uh, fast paced, high energy, individualistic style that that tends to happen down in South America. That'd be very entertaining to watch. And then the United States, I think you can really see the effects of sports like football and hockey on the way we approach this sport. Um, but that is a whole other conversation. Folks, we are 40 minutes into this and we still got a little bit to talk about. We so do. we got to keep trucking through here. Important conversation here. Uh, Danny, you brought up Copa America. Let's discuss, as you mentioned, this was Neymar versus Messi in this final between Brazil and Argentina. Argentina comes out the winner. This is Lionel Messi's first major tournament victory in his entire career, which is crazy to think about. But, you know, as we approach this important moment in Messi's career uh, here in the what you might say the twilight of his of his prime of his career of however you want to describe it uh Keenan let, let me ask you what does now having a title and a trophy to hold do for Lionel Messi's legacy does it affect it at all or does it boost him that much more well, I think that with Ronaldo winning in 2016 I think that was the fundamental difference you saw that Messi can win at the international level. I cannot win at the international level while Ronaldo has proved that he can. And I think too, another, you know, hindrance if you're going to critique him is that in big games, in big tournaments, Messi does not show up in that, you know, he's able to win at a club level where, you know, everything's tailor-made for him, but when he has to compete with what he's given, um, he's not able to, you know, be that inspiration. Um, that, you know, one of the greats would be and be able to be the driving force for a national program. So all that's thrown out the window. Um, now that he's won, in my opinion, it further boosts his resume. And if you just look at how he played this tournament, it was nothing short of um, really just beautiful. He scored four goals. Euro leaders were at five. Um, a couple of them, Shtick had five, um, for example. Picked up uh, five assists, though. Euro leader had four. Scored two goals off free kicks. The only goal scored off the free kick was that worldie that uh, Denmark scored against England in the semifinals. Um, had more 
chances created than any other uh, Euro player, had more crucial through balls, whatever that statistic means, than Pogba or anyone else at the Euros. So I think, you know, this tournament for Messi was obviously nothing short of great. I don't think, you know, this was like the Messi tournament or, you know, like the Messi game or something where he was looking to cement his legacy. But I think it was just more of a, a class show of how much of an impact he still has for that program. Um, I think that he's so dynamic in how he can play and that whether he's tucking in more central or staying out wide, he really does make everyone better around him. And I think that's maybe where if you're looking to, I know we had entertained it at one point on this podcast, but if you're looking to compare him to, you know, like Ronaldo or something, his ability to play into other people's feet and also not to be the center of attention while still being able to dominate a game is where you might say that his, his prowess comes where Ronaldo's might drop off. But I don't think that's the point in any of this. I think that now right going into a world cup next year, I think that this probably will be, well, he just inked a new four-year deal with Barcelona. So I don't think he's going anywhere too quick, but I think that this might be the end of Messi's run at the world cup. Um, coming up next year. So I think that this Copa, though, gives him the confidence that seemingly he had been lacking um, in terms of, you know, taking this Argentina team to a final again, as they did in 2014, and really trying to win a World Cup for his country. Because as we know, Argentina has been a great footballing nation, but only two World Cups. And I think that's kind of the standard to which they hold their greats, as Maradona won one for them in the 80s. So I think that's the standard for Argentina times and I think that's the standard he wants to reestablish within the country so I think overall this is great for Messi's confidence it's great for Argentina as a footballing nation and I think it's great for the world in soccer just because if Brazil wins it again you're like yeah Brazil was always number one in South America but this proves that Argentina is not going anywhere yeah Keenan I I have to disagree this was definitely this was definitely a messy Neymar game I I saw Twitter blowing up Neymar freaking out that Brazilians were rooting for Messi and leaving their, their team behind because they wanted Messi to win over their own, their own national team. I mean, I think Messi would have went down as a legend either way. This was definitely for himself. This was the icing on the cake. It was four times he had to lose, you know, in, in, and exits of major tournaments. He he's, you know, the decision to retire at one point, which I didn't really agree with, but he's arguably the, best goal scorer we've seen in our lives it was ending a 28-year drought of major trophies and he was named best player of the tournament I mean in my opinion though Messi didn't always let down his team it was when he got his team to a final where is the team where where were the 10 players besides you know he's going to be triple marked quadruple marked his team never came through for him in big moments in my opinion he always got he got them there it's a team sport we've spoke about this a million times I'm happy to see his team in a final get him there it was a beautiful goal it was you know in the 22nd minute minute Angel Di Maria just chipping the goalkeeper I think it was a horrible mistake by the defense, just putting your leg out there, you know, hoping maybe he would be offsides, which it was a very close call. But nonetheless, this there's one way to describe this this trophy and this title for Messi, and it's in his own words. What beautiful madness! This was for him at the end of the day. I think his own self belief, and of course, it gives Argentina something to ride off of. But at the end of the day, 
I think he would have obviously went down a legend either way. This, this just caps it off. It's like, imagine Tom Brady, but without a Super Bowl win, you know, and now we have, and now Messi, you know, but, but that's what, that's my, the best comparison I could think of. And I really am not a Tom Brady fan, <laughs> but you know, it, I, I want to also highlight just to talk about how soccer is this beautiful sport, you know, Neymar after the game, wasn't the one to go up to Messi. Messi went up to Neymar and, and hugged him. And Messi also made sure that his own team stopped taunting Brazilian fans. It's just, Messi is a, a good human. He is a good player. He's a great player. He calls his family on his knees, you know, after lifting the trophy, crying on the field saying, I won, I won. This was just, this is what that player needed. And, and I, think there were so many people around the world that even if they didn't know soccer, but they heard this story, they were rooting for Messi as I was rooting for Tom Brady to win in the Super Bowl because it's just there's certain things in sports that you want to see players achieve. And this was something we all wanted him to achieve. But again, I just disagree on the point that it wasn't Messi that couldn't finish it for his team. His team never was there for him, in my opinion. And now they were, you know, Di Maria coming through with the chip and that's that's all she wrote yeah i mean you know i i don't think it's particularly what keenan was implying that he felt this way but it was it, it's it's just the argument's kind of silly i think uh, of criticizing him for not i mean like if you're given the materials to build a house then yeah you could build a house but if you're only given enough to build a shed and then you build the shed and someone goes well it's no house like mm-hmm. what do you expect but um uh, of course, wonderful to see Messi win that. Congratulations to him and to all of the Argentinians for uh, winning the Copa America. We uh, let's do a really quick lightning round here because we I want to get us out in like five minutes here. Let's talk about the Gold Cup real quick uh, for the U.S. men's national team. They won their first matchup of uh, the group stage against Haiti one nil. They got Martinique as we speak tonight at nine thirty. They got Canada on Sunday. So, uh, Keenan, r- really quick thoughts on the U.S. team. Um. Greg Burhalter needs to go. I wish I could just leave it as simple as that, but you look at this lineup we're lining up, it's quite literally a B roster, if not a C roster. I think for a U.S. national team that, you know, didn't qualify in 2018 really shamefully, why the heck are you not playing an international tournament with your best lineup possible? I think his in his press conference, he said something like, we need to have depth in order to, you know, contend for an international trophy like the World Cup, but I don't personally think that, you know, this is the depth that anyone wants to see come Cutter next year. Um, no disrespect to the players on the current roster. I think they played a very good game, and I'm excited to see what they do against Martinique. But personally speaking, I don't think that any of these players are near the world-class talent that is not only available, but it is necessary for the United States to make a good run. As we've been talking, Copa and Euro and the, you know, the big powers that are out there, um, you need – talented players to play together in order for them to gel in order for them to have a sense of style that they play with. And it's tough for, you know, my always critique of the United States national team is what style do we play? You look at, you know, the Germany's of the world's Italy's of the world teams that, that win consistently at a high level. It's because they play with a certain style and they play that style all throughout their national program. And I think Greg Berhalter is a perfect example. It's okay. Well, when the best 11 play, we play one way. Then we line up the, you know, the MLS all-stars to go out and play in the gold cup. They play entirely different style and try and get wins that way. So I think overall that, you know, 
hopefully Gold Cup you should win or, you know, you should lose to Mexico and that'd be your only loss. Um, so I'm excited to see what they do the rest of the tournament. But overall, I think I speak on money, U.S. men's national team fans. But that when we say we saw this roster, we were like, what the hell? U.S. soccer for the men's side has been broken for a very, very, very long time. Berhalter is now given 45 players their U.S. men's national team debut in 30 games in charge. I'm actually not upset with this. We need to find a style. And how else are we going to find it if we don't keep trying something new? We're not you know, a number one team that's risking anything. We're not risking anything at all, quite honestly, in my opinion, because we stink compared to the European nations, compared to the Copa teams, everyone. I believe that the U.S. will beat Martinique. They faced them twice before. They'll beat them tonight. I don't know about Canada. We will see. It's it's a long road for the U.S. team. I don't, I think we got to save this the next episode. Danny, before I take off to my less fun and less exciting job, um, I think you're saying, you know, you got to try every style. Okay, let's see. No Weston McKinney plays for Juventus. No Pulisic, who starts in a Champions League final for Chelsea. Come on now. Okay, no Zach Steffen, biggest goalkeeper signing since Tim Howard in Europe. I think that, yeah, you're trying to find certain styles. Maybe you can interchange some players that are on the fence, but if you're not going to have your stars out there, when was the last time Argentina seriously lined up in a tournament without a Messi, without a Di Maria, without a Higuain, if they're all fit and they're all eligible to play? I think that the fundamental problem is Burl Halter's trying to, you know, oh, I want everyone to be ready. No, just focus on 20. The roster's going to be 22. Focus on 22 to get ready, maybe 26. If you want to win at the international level, specifically if the U.S. wants to get back to the World Cup uh, in 2022, they're just going to have to take it a little more seriously than they do. You can't be rebuilding all the time, not on this level. But at least that's just what I think. Quickly before we go, just want to mention the U.S. women's team is going to start their run representing this nation at the Olympics on Wednesday, July the 21st. They'll have Sweden in the first game in Tokyo. If you feel like getting up at 4.30 in the morning Eastern time, you can catch that game in real time. Danny, I know you're still here. Do you have any quick thoughts for the, uh, for the U.S. women's team before they start their Olympic run? I just want to say I said it was Carly Lloyd's team and I just saw an article that was out that just proved that even more to me not trying to prove myself right. But <laughs> but there was a really fascinating article. You know, she wrote an autobiography five years ago. She was disconnected from her family for 12 years due to her connection with her trainer. She decided to cut ties with that trainer and reconnected with her family and now that her family's back in the picture and supporting her in soccer, she claims to be the hap- most at peace and happiest she's ever been. I think this is a story to watch. You know, we know Carly Lloyd is the GOAT, but I think I think she's going to play this tournament even differently because now the weight of the world is off of her shoulders. Maybe something a lot of people didn't know. And that's exciting to me to just to see how confident she seems. And she always has been a confident player, but this is behind the scenes kind of stuff. Family is so important to have them now supporting her. I actually grew confidence in the U.S. team. I know I was skeptical how they would play against big teams, but knowing this story now about Carly Lloyd, U.S. wins gold. And now it's there. It's out there now. You better hope there. You better hope you're right, Danny. <laughs> well, we got to wrap things up because we are about to hit 54 minutes of this episode. My goodness, but it has been a fun one. We had so much to catch you up on, or at least to catch up ourselves on more accurately. And we did that. We'll be back next week to talk more international football. We hope you watch more yourself. There's plenty to watch this week in the gold cup and the starting Olympics. We hope you enjoy it. But for my friends, Keenan Troy and Danny, Danny Perry, 
My name is Dylan Balsamo. This has been FUVFC, a production, as always, of WFUV Sports. See you soon. <laughs>